Beloved, this is our God's word to us. It is not human. It is divine. It is perfect. And it is for our own good. And so let us give our attention to the reading of it. And when he, that is Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave you one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words." So ends the reading of our God's word this morning. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Almighty God, your creation is insufficient to reveal the fullness of your character. Our imaginations are too weak and too small and too corrupt to imagine just how truly glorious your character and your grace and your love are. And so we need your word. For it is there alone that we see just how great you are. Help us to see that this morning as we draw near to you in your word. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Well, you may have noticed, but we talk about suffering a lot. We talk about its inevitability, that you can't avoid it. We talk about what it produces, how it produces humility in us and therefore dependence upon God. And we even talk, ultimately, about God's design in allowing suffering, that he allows it for our good. And we talk about it a lot, if you're wondering, because the Bible talks about it a lot and because it is a big part of our life and our reality. But there's a danger in that. There's a danger in talking about it a lot. And that is to begin to think and to accept suffering simply as a normal part of the Christian life on this earth. And doing that, and while it is in one sense a normal part, it might lead us to think that God is indifferent to our suffering. That because God can see the big picture that he doesn't get bogged down in the emotions of the moment. That because he can see the end and where it's leading, that it doesn't affect him in the ways that it affects us. And our passage today is intended to drive such thoughts from our minds. Because it records one of the two places, the only two places in the Bible, where Jesus weeps. And it shows us, if we slow down and look at it, it shows us that God is not indifferent to our suffering. But through tears, he allows it for our own good. 
That's what we want to see. And as we dive in, we're going to see that Jesus knows what it will take to bring his people to repentance, namely judgment and suffering. And while he is willing to allow that for their good, it does bring him to tears. And that this, this should be a comfort to us in the midst of afflictions, knowing that this Jesus, the Jesus of this passage, cares for us, loves us, and is with us when we go through hard times. That's really what I, I want to drive home as we look at this passage this morning. Uh, last time, uh, two weeks ago, when I, last time I preached, uh, we looked at Jesus' descent from the Mount of Olives uh, on, on a donkey, and as he approached Jerusalem for what would be his last week of life on this earth, uh, he warned his disciples uh, as he was getting close to Jerusalem what awaited him there, and they didn't believe him. They thought glory was coming, but he knew that it was pain that awaited him in Jerusalem. And as Jerusalem comes into view, as he rounds the bend, as it were, as he sees Jerusalem, he begins to weep. And as I said, this is one of the only two times, only two times in the Bible where we see Jesus weep. And I'm not saying that he didn't weep at at other times. I'm just saying that these are the only two, there are only two that the Bible records. The other is at the grave of Lazarus in John 11. And this one is as he approaches Jerusalem a week before his crucifixion. And we we shouldn't separate these two. The word for weeping here that we see is is most commonly used to describe those uh, as they wail and they grieve and they mourn at the loss of a loved one when they have had to say goodbye to someone dear to them. If you've wept at a funeral, at the bedside, at that last moment, you understand what's going on here. It's like Jesus has arrived at a funeral, and it's Jerusalem's funeral. And he weeps, and he tells us why. He says that they are blind to the things that make for peace. And that encompasses so much. It it, it means definitely recognizing Jesus for who he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But it also means recognizing what he must do to make peace for them. You can't help but, but, but see how this language echoes something we saw just in chapter 18. As, as his disciples were excited about everything, he told them what awaited him in Jerusalem, that, that he would be betrayed and handed over to the Gentiles, that he would be mocked and, and, and uh, tortured and killed. And then he said this, he says, or Luke says this actually, he says, but they, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was being said. They're blind to the fact that the only way for God to reconcile a sinful people to himself is through the sacrifice of his son. They don't get the gravity of their sin. And they don't get the futility of their own strength 
the impotence of their own righteousness. They're, they're blindly going about as if everything's okay, as if it all work out the end. We'll all be in heaven. Just do you the best you can. And this, this indifference, this blindness is most clearly seen in their worship. Because the temple and the worship they offer in it has been reduced down to a business. They think that peace with God can be accomplished through, through something no deeper than a business relationship, a transaction. They show up, they, they go through the motions, they offer their sacrifices, and they think, bang, peace has been accomplished. And they have salesmen ready for them to, to change their money, to, to sell them sacrifices to offer. The temple has become this well oiled machine. And that's all it is, this heartless enterprise. And so while they honor God with their lips, their hearts are far from him, and he knows, he sees, and he cares. And so it's with the deepest sobriety that Jesus reveals what's next for his people. In verses 43 and 44, he tells them judgment is coming. He foretells what will happen in the very near future when the Roman army will surround Jerusalem and and completely bring them to their knees. The Romans would come in and they would destroy this temple which still remains in ruins to this day, 2,000 years later. And then they, the Jewish people, as a people, would be scattered to the far corners of the earth. And as a people, they would suffer more than probably any other people group has ever suffered. And that's saying a lot. We've seen a lot of genocide, slavery. We have seen ugly things throughout history. But this people... been neglected, isolated, the Holocaust, anti-Semitism, on and on, the hatred, the persecution has gone. What what Jesus says is starting has been fulfilled for almost 2,000 years of persecution and suffering. And the book of Romans tells us why. It says the first thing that God will do through all of this is offer an opportunity for Gentiles who did not previously know the true God to come in and be joined into his family. It, it, it's this crazy thing that, that as the Jews were scattered from Jerusalem and went to the far regions of the earth, that some of them would take the message of hope, the message of salvation, of peace with God through repentance and faith, and Gentiles would come to believe in the God of Israel. I would not be overstating it to say that you and I are here today because of what Jesus says in verses 43 and 44. And the judgment that he is announcing is the vehicle through which the message of salvation has gone into the world. But it's not the only reason. Romans goes on and tells us that that God would use the salvation of the Gentiles to bring his own people to jealousy, and through jealousy, repentance, and through repentance, salvation. 
As he shows kindness and mercy to foreign peoples, his own people would see what they're missing. And it took for granted and come to repentance. The road that, that he is starting his people on in verses 43 and 44 will lead to the salvation for both Jews and Gentiles throughout the next few thousand years. And that means peace with God for both Jews and Gentiles will be found through the coming judgment. And God knows that this is the only way. That this is what it will take to take his message to the ends of the earth. That this is what it will take to wake his people up and bring them to repentance. And this is not the first time God has had to do this in history. In fact, Jesus says something in verse 46 uh, that is a combination of two verses from the Old Testament, one from Isaiah, one from uh, Isaiah 56, and one from Jeremiah 7. And when those passages and others like them were written, Israel was on the brink of judgment at a different point, uh, some 600 years earlier. They had grown cold and indifferent towards their God. They were going through the motions with, with hearts that were completely detached from the words that they were speaking. They had reduced worship down to a, a simple business devoid of any real devotion. So God told them that he was giving them over to the hands of their enemies, that they would be scattered and taken from their land into exile. He sent the Babylonians under, under Nebuchadnezzar to come in and to destroy his own temple. And he told them at the beginning why. It was to show them the futility of their ways before it was too late. To humble them and drive them to repentance. But it broke God's heart to do it. Go home this afternoon, read Amos chapter 5. It's a lament, it's a lamentation, but it's God's lament over what he must do to his people to wake them up. It's a father weeping over his children as he says, this is the only way to save you. And they eventually did repent as he said they would. And the Lord brought them back and they rebuilt the temple and they had peace. But eventually... Eventually, they were lulled back into spiritual slumber, and they once again turned worship into a business. And that's where Jesus finds them as he comes into Jerusalem that Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago. And he declares to them that he's about to do it all over again. What he had to do last time, he's going to do again, but on a greater scale. But just as it did before, it brings no joy, no comfort, only lamentation. And so he weeps. Because that's who God is. He's willing to do what is necessary to make peace, even if it's costly, and if he must do it through tears. And he's not exempt from, from that cost. This is what Jesus has been telling his disciples. He's been talking about walking toward his own suffering on the cross. He hasn't just told his disciples they would be handed over to the Gentiles. He has said, first, he will be. 
He doesn't take that lightly. He doesn't say, ah, but it's no problem. I'll be raised on the third day. He says it troubles his soul to death. Grief, sorrow, mourning, and tears. That's how he looks upon the coming affliction. But he does it because there's no other way to peace. There's no salvation for his people if he doesn't do it. This is the only way. This is the road to glory. The only road to glory. And so he does not spare himself from pain and anguish. Because for him the cost is worth it. But he's not aloof and he's not indifferent. He isn't unaffected by it because he sees the big picture. He is fully and completely engaged in the emotions of the moment. It affects him. But he does it. He's willing to suffer all of that pain because that's what it takes to save us. And he's willing to let those he loves go through similar heartache because it's the only way for them to share in his glory. He says, only those who share in my suffering will share in my glory. Because it's there we learn to cry out. He knows it's through trials that we learn humility. It's there we learn to look up and to cry out and to repent. And in so doing, we find life and we find peace with God. The God whom we've sinned against. The God whom we've offended. There's no other way. This is the road to glory. The only road. And it's here we find peace. But it doesn't mean he's indifferent or unaffected. That because he sees the big picture, that he doesn't get bogged down in the pain and the emotions of the moment. That because he sees the end, it doesn't affect him the way it affects us. That's why as he approaches Jerusalem, he does so through tears. Because he knows the cost that not just he is about to bear, but the cost his people will will bear to be brought near. My hope is is that this passage is, is more than a historically interesting episode. My hope is that you see the heart of your Savior. And why he allows hard times in your life. More than that, I hope you see his heart when he does. Jesus is not distant, unaffected, and indifferent in your pain. He knows the cost you are enduring and he knows why. It's so that you can be brought close to him and be with him for all eternity. The tears in our passage show us how our God sees our afflictions. They break his heart. He allows them, but they break his heart. He does so because there's no other way. It's the only road to glory. It's through these things that we learn to stop trusting our own strength. 
It's in the midst of trials that we stop treating worship like it's a business. That if we simply do our part, God will give us what we want. It's in the hard times that we truly learn to cry out for mercy and truly believe that we don't have the power or the strength in ourselves that we need a Savior. The Lord allows things that make him weep because without them we would be lost. These are the things that make for peace. And this is most clearly shown to us in the Lord's Supper. Why would the Lord leave us a visible reminder of his hardest hour? Why not something that commemorates the triumphal entry? Seems a little happier, right? Why not his birth? Why would he commemorate the very thing that he says troubled his soul unto death? It's because it was at the cross that peace was made, that salvation was purchased. And so he didn't shy away from it. He didn't hold it at a safe distance. He endured it through tears. That's who he is, and it's who he calls us to be. Our passage presents us with a choice about how we're going to view hardships, how we're going to view afflictions. We can choose to see it as as God's hatred toward us, that, that he's treating us like enemies. Beloved, if that was true, what would that say about Jesus Christ and all he endured on the cross? It would mean that he was the Father's greatest enemy and the most hated person in history. Or we could choose to see our affliction and believe that that God is distant and detached and indifferent. But if that was true, Jesus would not be crying in our passage. He simply won't allow us to think that. So what's left? We could choose to see our affliction as a sharing in the painful suffering of Jesus and as the only possible road to glory, the place where we learn to surrender our pride and our self-reliance, where we, where we learn to lean upon him, and where we learn to weep with our Savior, bearing hard times and tears. I think sometimes we think that because God tells us what he's doing through suffering, we're supposed to be unaffected by it. Oh, it's for our good. Don't, don't cry. <laughs> no, God says weep, lament, cry out. Because when we do, it's, it's then that we learn to truly worship our God. Not as some business transaction, but as the deepest act of devotion and love and hope. Every time we gather together, we, we do so many things. But, but part of that is, is recognizing what we were made for. We were made to stand in the presence of our God and, and to sing his praises without, without tear or pain or suffering. And we acknowledge that while we're in this world, it falls so far short, but we know where we're headed. And so on one hand, Sunday worship should be one of the greatest, most exciting, joyous events, and it should also be done through tears. 
My prayer is that you understand that Jesus doesn't call you to, to view your hard times with some sort of cold, dispassionate indifference. I think we all need to learn to weep more. To weep with Jesus. And in that weeping, learn to surrender. And in surrender, no peace. Amen. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward as we receive the Lord's Supper this morning. And please bow with me in prayer. Father, teach us to weep, to see affliction for what it is, painful, ugly, and the result of sin. But let us not weep as those who have no hope. Let us weep as those who know your word, that that through judgment comes salvation, that death is followed by resurrection. Teach us that the way of peace, the road to glory, to eternal comfort, is always and only found through tears. We ask this all in the name of our Savior, who wept over us, Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. Amen.